Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. When I give talks to lawyers, I say, the problem with using a deposition to prepare for trial is that you're maybe 90% of it is you're training the witness to be a better witness at your expense. And maybe 10% of it is you're getting material that you can use uh, in your cross-examination. Please rise, court is now in session. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am your host, Steve Lowry, here with uh, Vaughn Godfrey. Uh, Vaughn, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Will you um, th- this won't be airing um, right away, but you are... I guess, still evacuated for Hurricane Dorian, right? I, I am still evacuated, and I um, we could have head back today, but I figured since we're doing podcasts, it wouldn't be smart to be in the car, you know, going <laughs> through dead zones where they couldn't hear what I was saying. Right. Um, so we're going to leave first thing in the morning, and um, yeah, so we're since we're taking a little break, I guess we're supposed to pretend like, you know, uh, you know welcome back. Hey, how's this been? Uh, we, oh, yeah, you're right. There. but really we're recording this like a few days after we said we were going to be taking a break (laughs) right right exactly exactly well Well, that's um, the magic of uh podcasting that's right that's right um yeah we're we're, uh going into the future by about six weeks and uh and nobody knows um (laughs) All right. Well, listen, uh, we have got uh, just a, a fantastic uh, lawyer on the phone or on the on video uh, to interview. Uh, and uh, I'm proud to welcome to the show uh, Patrick Malone from Patrick Malone uh, uh, and Associates. And you can look up Patrick at PatrickMaloneLaw.com. He's based in Washington, D.C. Patrick, how are you doing? Excellent. Well, we are so proud to have you on here. And, uh, and you know, I... Uh, uh, anybody who does trial work, uh, especially on the plaintiff side, anybody who does trial work, uh, I think knows you or at least should know you and should at least have one of your books on their shelves. I know I've got the rules of the road uh, on my uh, shelf and I, uh, anytime I'm getting ready for trial, I always open it up to see if uh, there's any tips I can get uh, you know, before going in front of a jury. Oh, thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Well, let me uh, tell our, our listeners a little bit about your background, Patrick, so they can know who we're talking to. So Patrick is uh, based out of Washington, D.C. Uh, before he was a lawyer, you were an investigative journalist, and, uh, and that's sort of where you honed your, uh, your skills at, uh, at, at um, talking to people and getting the, the facts out of, uh, out of them. Uh, you went to a, a decent law school that I've heard of before, uh, Yale, and... Uh, <laughs> And then since then, you have published a number of books, including uh, Rules of the Road and Winning uh, malpractice, Medical Malpractice Cases with Rules of the Road Technique. Both of those were with uh, uh, the great Rick Friedman. Uh, and then you also have published uh, The Fearless Cross-Examiner, Win the Witness, Win the Case. And in addition to that, you've tried a bunch of cases, had some really great success. Uh, you've been named the best lawyers in America, uh, Law Dragon's 500 leading lawyers in America, uh, one of the top 100 lawyers in D.C., which in their bar has seven, got 70,000 members in it, uh, and it is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, which is a, a very prestigious uh, organization. So uh, we are so, uh, so glad to have you on here, Patrick. Yeah, thanks. Well, um, the case that we're talking about is a case that looks like you tried about a year ago, uh, and the name of the case was uh, Gambino versus MedStar Georgetown Medical Center, uh, DBA Georgetown University Hospital, uh, and this was tried in 2018 in Washington, D.C., 
And uh, I'll, I'll cut to the chase and just tell the, our listeners that the verdict was uh, $3,600,000. Uh, in this case, as I understand it, Patrick, and if I, if I make some mistakes, go ahead and just correct me. But as I understand it, uh, your client uh, was born premature at 31 weeks in the hospital. And, um, and because of that, uh, they need to keep um, her in the NICU. And um, while she's in the NICU, they need to make sure that she's eating properly. And when you're born that premature, sometimes they can have trouble getting uh, vitamins and things like that in. And so they uh, put an IV in uh, in order to give those vitamins. And it has to go into the vein uh, in order to make sure that it can uh, mix with the blood and break down uh, the concentrate that's being given to them. And sometimes what can happen uh, is that that uh, IV can get loose, it can get into the muscle or the, the um, soft tissue there in the leg. And if that happens, it starts the process of a chemical burn and can actually cause a very uh, bad, painful burn uh, to that area. And so what the nurses uh, and the caretakers are supposed to do is watch for that, check for that every hour uh, and make sure that that's not happening. And if they see that's happening, then immediately pull out that IV so to stop any burn from happening. And unfortunately, that didn't happen uh, for your client. And she uh, suffered a very bad a chemical burn to her ankle and foot, uh, which not only was very painful, uh, very scarring, but, um, you know, and would limit her activity. And, um, and, and so that was essentially what the case was about. How was that? Yeah, pretty good. I like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, our, 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 uh, our little girl was, um, two weeks old when this injury happened to her. And, um, it was on the ankle of her right leg, which they were using a vein down in the ankle for their access for the uh, nutrition that they were giving her. And um, so she was born about eight, eight and a half weeks uh, premature. And when they're that young, uh, they're pretty good health. It's not like one of these super teeny tiny uh, miracle babies, but uh, definitely premature, and those kids uh, don't usually yet have the sucking reflex. Right. So they feed them through the intravenous line, and uh, they know that the chemicals uh, are very safe if the whole body gets to dilute them, you know, by circulating through the whole body before they they kind of soak out into the rest of the body but if you if you get the the chemicals directly into any kind of soft tissue like the muscles or, or fat uh they're they're very concentrated and can cause a, a chemical burn so what they do is they they have a little chart um where they record each and every hour uh, on a little handwritten chart with little squares on it. And they just write in the hour like military time, you know, uh, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and then 13, 14, 15 for one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. And, and they just record how it looks. 
because they're supposed to check it every hour. And uh, what happened was uh, our little girl, that particular day, um, mom and dad had been there late the night before because she was very fussy and, and uh, had to have a, a fairly big procedure, some kind of, uh, of uh, tap to, uh, to do um, a test on her. And so they were at the hospital really late. So the next morning, they, uh, mom and grandma uh, are sleeping in. So they don't get to the hospital until three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, first time they're coming that day. And this is at age two weeks of age. And when they get there, uh, grandma, uh, who's the mother of our mother of the mother, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> of our client. And she's, um, she has very, uh, you know, kind of, uh, dramatic, uh, testimony. She says, uh, you know, they, they stop at the uh, entrance to the newborn intensive care and they have to, you know, wash their hands up and put these gowns on and stuff for sterile situations. And then they're, they're approached, they're walking up to the little incubator bassinet thing that the, that the baby's in. And it was on kind of the other side of the, of the NICU. So she first sees it from from, um, oh, at least 15, 20 feet away. And she notices, uh, geez, why is she wearing, uh, Raquel, the baby, why is she wearing a red sock? And then as she gets up uh, to the incubator and, and the baby's by herself, she sees uh, that it's not a red sock, it's a totally inflamed, uh, foot uh, from the entire foot really halfway up the the uh, calf and she calls over the nurse and says my when was the last time you checked this you checked her and the nurse says two hours oh. and uh, and then the nurse all hell breaks loose and the nurse calls in a bunch of other people and and uh, and the the uh, mom, uh, uh, you know, grandma's daughter practically faints. She sees it. She describes it later as the foot looks like it's been dipped in lava. Mm. And uh, to make a long story short, you know, let's forward ahead five years to the time of trial. I mean, the parents, they're not vindictive people. Uh, they're grateful for the care that their daughter got. But uh, she was left with a really pretty hideous uh, scar that wrapped around the almost the entire ankle, uh, except for the very front of the ankle. And the problem with scars is that they're tight, uh, unlike our regular skin, which you know stretches and is very supple in all directions. So it it kind of the, the tightness of this big scar was not only uh, pretty ugly because it had burned out the the fat right below the skin and so her wither her ankle looked 
uh, withered. Uh, but but the main thing for functioning is that it's it's uh, the the ankle is, is tethered. She couldn't walk normally. Uh, in fact, it was really uh, funny at trial. She she uh, skips a lot, uh, just like any five year old. Well, the reason she skips a lot, she doesn't say this, but it's kind of obvious. She skips because it covers up the fact that she can't put her foot down normally, you know, heel right. to toe. And it's, and it's actually a nice, uh, you know, wisdom of children sort of thing. Uh, uh, kids are uh, just a almost, you know, unconscious way that she, she sort of um, covered it up. But she's, um, she had to have a series of laser treatments where they, they, uh, basically burn tiny little holes in the scar to try to loosen it up. And she had six of those. She had casting of the foot uh, over a period of months to try to uh, prevent it from tightening up too much. Uh, and she's gonna have at least two major orthopedic surgeries, one to uh, <clears throat> stop the other leg from growing because this leg uh, the, the tightness in the ankle has kind of literally held that uh, leg back from growing. Oh, wow. Faces the other leg, so she's already gotten lopsided. And uh, to make a long story short, it's a pretty significant injury. And we um, tried the case solely on... Uh, her own non-economic pain and suffering, um, you know, embarrassment and disfigurement and that those kinds of injuries. We didn't put in any medical bills and we didn't um, uh, claim any future medical bills, although, you know, we would have had something for the future orthopedic care she needs, but, but we kind of let that go because uh, frankly, it would have been kind of paltry in connection, in comparison with what we were trying to do with showing the jury, jury the profound lifelong nature of the, uh, just the, the cosmetic aspect and the, and the orthopedic aspect of it. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. 
They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Yeah, well, that's really, um, you know, that's a, um, when you have a significant injury that's, uh, that is like that, but it's, you know, as far as medical bills, uh, aren't, isn't going to be that much, uh, yeah, that can make it sound like it's not as bad as what you would think. What, what, what were her medical bills and what were the futures going to be that would have been in evidence if you'd done it? Um, it would have been frankly, high five figures, low six figures. I don't remember the exact number, but right. um, it was an easy number to to not put into evidence, Right. especially in DC where we don't have uh, damage caps. In okay. Maryland, right next door to us, uh, if this had happened there, we might've, it would have been a tougher decision because right. Maryland, has unlimited medical bill damages, but it puts a cap on non-economic and that makes it tough. Got it. Right. Well, I, I did think, I mean, obviously it was, it was a strategic decision that paid off um, based on your verdict, but I also thought reading your um, closing that it must've been very effective for the jury because you were able to say, you know, this is what we're asking for. We're not asking for the medical bills. The parents aren't asking for something for their, themselves. They're trying to take care of, of their, their child. They're asking for things on behalf of their child. Yeah, in fact, uh, got a couple of nods from the jury at that point in the closing. What I said was, um, uh, you know, I was going over the, and this is something you always have to do if you're plaintiff's personal injury, in my opinion. You, you need a good description from in your jury instructions of what it is you're asking for, all the different elements of damage. Right. Yeah. And we have a pretty good one in DC that goes on for four or five paragraphs. Um, loss of enjoyment of life, um, disfigurement, humiliation, past and future. And so, so it's a good meaty discussion that you can play into. And so I put this up on the board and show it to them and read it to them. And then I say, uh, or what I said was, uh, by the way, you notice there isn't any category on here for medical bills that mom and dad have paid. They're not asking you for any money for those 20 trips that they made up to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore to take their daughter up there for uh, treatment, you know, this is all 100% for, for their daughter. And at that point, I got a couple of nods. And uh, so I knew it had some resonance with people. The ironic fact was, uh, they had done us a favor, uh, the defense, we actually had a claim for the parents. Uh, and it was a real claim, a negligent infliction of emotional distress. Right. Um, the idea being that they were bystanders to uh, their daughter having a horrible injury and they 
you know, had a lot of mental impact from that. The law on that is unsettled in D.C. Uh, it used to be that uh, if you didn't have a physical injury yourself, right. you could make a claim only if you were in the so-called zone of danger, which yeah. would be like if you were stepping off a curb with your little daughter and she got hit by the car, but you didn't, as long as you were close enough that you were almost hit yourself, uh, then you could make a claim. But if you watch your daughter getting hit from your kitchen window, no claim. Right. So it's a very arbitrary um, rule. Uh, but they changed it about uh, seven, eight years ago. We had an on-bank decision by our local D.C. Court of Appeals where they said that um, we're expanding the rule of negligent infliction to cases where the defendant had a duty to protect the emotional well-being of the plaintiffs. Okay. And an example of that would be a funeral home where, uh, and there was a true case here in D.C. where the uh, funeral home takes the widow in to see her husband's body and they open up the casket and it's the wrong guy. Oh, no. <laughs> she, is, she is just out of her mind with shock and dismay. Oh. And she brings a case and they say, no, you weren't in any zone of danger. You're out of court. So in their new case, uh, the on-bank case, they reviewed all their old cases and they said, well, that really doesn't make any sense. So a case, so they said a funeral home director would be an example of a guy who did have a duty. To, that, that's all they're there for is to help the emotional well-being of the, of the survivors, right? And we said, well, similar, similarly, the parents of a baby in an intensive care, uh, the nurses and doctors have a duty to protect their emotional well-being. Well, yeah. I thought it was a pretty good argument, but we lost on summary judgment. And, um, and that actually allowed us at trial to, to say, you know, this is all for the daughter <laughs> right. and yeah. not for the parents. But, you know, under our, our rules of, of appeal is once we got past the post-trial motions where uh, the defendant predictably moved for um, uh, judgment, they had a very uh, thin, 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 thin issue to uh, claim that our experts didn't dot all their I's and cross all their T's on uh, standard of care testimony, but it was complete nonsense. But their main complaint was about the damages being too high. And the judge ruled against them on that. And uh, we then were went ahead and filed a notice of appeal on the summary judgment right away. And we did that, frankly, just to put pressure on them that to show them that going forward with a very marginal appeal on their side made no sense where we had a really nice clean issue for our cross appeal. Yeah. So uh, that actually helped us um, persuade them to, to drop their appeal and they paid the whole thing. Nice. 
That's that's uh, great, great for the family and great work by you. Uh, the you know that issue of negligent infliction of emotional distress is an interesting one. I had a case like that a few years ago, and you got it. We do have another exception in Georgia, which is um, if you suffer a pecuniary loss, you can also claim it, and um, and so then you get into interesting arguments over what is a pecuniary loss. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's uh, I. I I like your theory uh, a lot and I, it makes total sense that, uh, you know, when parents, especially when they're at a NICU where the baby is, you know, completely in the control of the, uh, um, the medical team and the parents basically have, you know, zero control. Um, it seems like a great argument for negligent infliction of emotional distress. Um, but I, I want to get back. I, I didn't understand when I was reading through the facts, I guess I, I missed the fact that the first person who saw the child's leg, uh, was the grandmother and then and then also the mom because I, it sounded like in the defense that they were trying to argue that the nurse actually was checking the child's foot but just wasn't documenting it. Is, did I get that well, right? Actually, uh, the defense was that, oh, I documented it every hour. Look at the form. I filled it out. In fact, I made very specific notations. Uh, there's no way we could really accuse her of kind of doctoring the records, making it up after the fact, but um, we did have this really good testimony. The, the, the strategic issue was, or maybe tactical issue, I keep messing up the difference between those two. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but the, the tactical issue was, we didn't want to pin the whole case on grandma. Right. But we wanted the jury to see that. And because we, we had our expert witnesses, we had a nurse, a NICU expert, and also a neonatologist expert. They said that the extent of the, of the chemical burn, the way it wrapped around, I mean, it just covered so much territory on right. the leg that it looked more like a two hour burn than a burn that was under one hour. Right. And where the, um, where the nurse defendant, actually we only sued the hospital cause it was the nurse was an employee, but the, the nurse who was responsible where she messed up was when she, tried to gild the lily a little bit in her testimony. She testified, her entire testimony was habit and practice. This is the way I always do things. I always check every hour. And then she did record P for Puffy in their one hour checklist thing uh, an hour before she found the problem. She said that I don't remember anything about this episode, but when I wrote P for Puffy, but I also wrote N for normally infusing, what that means is, oh, I did this great check and I made sure that it was still flowing into the vein properly. Um, and then, here's where she gilded the lily, I would have checked at least one or two more times during that next hour before the next hourly check was due. And so this made her 
really kind of put her a little bit out on a limb. Right. Because if she checked one or two more times, that means that at a minimum, oh, let's say one more time, that meant she would have checked it not just at two o'clock when she wrote P for Puffy, but she checked it at 2.30 again, which means that they were in the position of arguing that the this entire hideous third degree burn all came about in less than half an hour. Right. And it just wasn't credible when you looked at the, the photos. This was a, uh, this baby's entire lower leg, it did look uh, like it had been, uh, you know, dipped in lava or something. It was, it was bad. And um, our people were also able to say worst they'd ever seen or nearly the worst they'd ever seen in 30, 40 years of practice. And, um, and then we got a more neutral independent bystander expert, her treating plastic surgeon at Johns Hopkins. And here's a guy who treats all kinds of children who have burns and need uh, reconstructive surgery and, and laser treatments like she got. And he said, it's also the worst I've seen in my career. Mm -hmm. So the, the problem when you juxtapose that up against the universal standard of care, which is hourly checks, we said it only makes sense, and, and our experts said this too, it only makes sense that you'd have hourly checks if you could fix anything without long-term harm if it was under an hour that it had been, you know, infiltrating into the, into the local tissue. But if this could happen every, within less than half an hour, well, you would have changed the, your protocol. You'd make it every 30 minutes right. or every 20 minutes uh, to have these checks. And that was a very common sense item. And the defense really had no, explanation for that other than uh, smoke and mirrors. Did you, um, did you end up having the grandma testify about what she was told at the time, which was that it had been two hours? And if yes. so, um, what, did, what did the defense do with her? Did they try to attack her recollection on that? I mean, did they, did they go after grandma in front of the jury? <laughs> um, you, you know, uh, they didn't. They were smart enough not to do that. Um, they, uh, they figured, you know, I'm honestly not recalling right now. They figured out some way just to claim that when you look at the records and there's the hourly checks, grandma just must be mistaken. Uh, and it wasn't two hours. She must've said something else. Got it. Um, but the good part was, um, in fact, actually, they did s suggest something oblique like that on cross, a very brief cross, which enabled me to come back and ask her on redirect and saying, is, is there any doubt in your mind that that word, word two hours was used? And, and she said, uh, that is seared in my mind. I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. And part of the reason is I feel so guilty because I let my daughter sleep late that morning and I feel like it's my fault that 
we didn't get there in time that we could have prevented this ourselves. So that was, that was quite powerful. Right. And actually, that was good testimony also because, frankly, if you ever do any focus groups with um, uh, child injuries, uh, boy, people are, are, are really hard on parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That could have never happened to my child. I would have been there sleeping next to the bed or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Um, so you need to have, you need to anticipate that and have, uh, just some gentle pushback against the idea that, that, uh, the parents are at fault for not catching it themselves. Did they, did the, I mean, was there any sort of suggestion that, uh, you know, well, mom is taking her time sleeping in while her child's in the NICU and, um, you know. No, no it was never. Okay. No, it was never explicit. They, they tried the case on the defense uh, totally on uh, having, being a nurse, being a person of, of just model habits and practices. In fact, I saved up a little. Uh, analogy for rebuttal because uh, I thought it was pretty funny. They kept uh, throughout the test, they overplayed the defense. They they had this nurse on for literally hours talking about how throughout her 25 years of career as a nurse, starting in Korea where she was trained and going through everything she did at the hospitals there and then moving to the United States and Los Angeles and everything she did there. And then coming to Washington, D.C. and everything she did in D.C. It was all very repetitive. It was always the same thing. Here's what I would do when I would check the, the thing. And when they did this, they, they had a, a illustration up on the screen of, you know, just a simple illustration of an IV uh, and where the insertion point is in the body and how you could pull it out and you could flush the line, you know, just with a little bit of extra fluid to make sure that the, that it's still connected into the blood vessel and not into the uh, tissue. Cause if it's in the tissue, the, the pressure when you push water in will be, uh, you know, it'll be more resistance. It'll be, you can tell you're in the wrong place. And, but she just talked about that over and over and over and um, just way overkill. And so my point on, on uh, closing was that, you know, they keep making this defense about her model habits, but at the same time, of course, she remembers nothing about what happened here. Right. And although it was being, a terribly traumatic for everybody else on the scene, you know, a really horrible burn. So you'd think you would remember that. And we tried this case right after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And, mm-hmm. right. and, and, and so I mentioned in the closing about how, you know, we learned from those hearings that people who have emotionally traumatic experience, your memory goes, through the amygdala of your brain, it, your memory goes into overdrive and it really records things super well. That's why we all remember us old geezers like me. We all remember where we were when John F. Kennedy was killed and 
the rest of us remember where we were when the Twin Towers came down, stuff like that. But right. Was it really credible that she couldn't remember any of this thing? Yeah. But that was point one. But point two was all this stuff about about her model habits. Uh, I sort of made gentle fun of it. I said it, it would be like defending a driver for hitting a pedestrian in the crosswalk by putting a diagram up on the board of the gas pedal and the brake pedal <laughs> and having the witness say, um, well, I don't remember this particular event, but I can tell you my 100% uniform habit was I kept my foot firmly on the brake, looked to the left, looked to the right, and then look back to the left again and then gently would move my foot from the brake pedal to the, you know, it was just kind of textbook. This is how we always do it. Uh, and of course the problem for them is they, they really couldn't explain the injury. Right. right. I, I did think it was really effective um, reading your closing, the way you talked about, um, about memory and how, how, and, and how traumatic events like that just end up getting recorded really well. Because I think once you use the example of 9-11 with the jury, everybody thinks about where they were automatically. Reading it, you know, just reading um, and preparing to talk to you today, that's what I thought about. And so I, I think it, it just seems like a really effective way to get the jury thinking, I think I'd remember this if I were that nurse or, you know, if I were there. Yeah, and then and then the other point that added to this, and this was where, by the way, um, we, we got the hospital policy document, which had a fantastic item in it. Um, they have a the these infiltration injuries are so common in newborn intensive care, minor injuries, not big ones like this one. They're so common that they've got a whole policy about it. And then at the end of the policy, there's this really cool thing, which is a chart uh, where there's just a little sketch of a baby. And it's a piece of paper that you're supposed to pull out of the policy book and Xerox it and put it in the chart whenever you've had one of these infiltration episodes. And you mark on there exactly where the infiltration was, just a simple, you know, circling the area or shading it in. And then you record exactly when you discovered it, when was the last time you checked, and you estimate the amount of fluid that has gone in there. She had never filled out this form. Uh, and they tried to make an excuse for why she didn't do it. Well, you know, it wouldn't have prevented the injury, but, but wait a second, here you're talking about an injury that is, that is uh, so bad you'd think you'd want to know all these facts so you could prevent it from happening next time. Mm -hmm. So it was just a way we said for her to avoid remembering the event by just walking away from it afterwards and writing only minimal notes about it. And so I think it was a way, a pointed but, but fairly gentle way to cast into doubt the whole issue of lack of memory and falling back on your model uh, habits and practices and and also to say 
you know, the guilt here is in your failure to do your job of recording what afterwards exactly what uh, what had happened. And and just to add one tiny little point, you know, it's fortuitous what you what you find when you're getting ready for trial. So we're we're getting ready for um, opening arguments, and I'm looking for something that I can uh, put on a PowerPoint to just to start out by showing here's what the newborn intensive care unit looks like at Georgetown Hospital. So I'm Googling around on their website and lo and behold, the one photo they have on the website of the NICU, it shows a, a couple of incubators and you know that it's hard to see if there's any children in them or not. And that, that's appropriate. You don't want to invade anybody's privacy. But there's a nurse sitting there in the chair. And what is the nurse doing? She is has an open chart in front of her and she's writing notes <laughs> documenting her care. Right, right. So, so we use that in opening without commenting on it, just to say, well, here's here's from their own website, here's what what the uh, NICU looks like, but then brought it back up in closing and said, hey, you remember this from their website? They seem to think it was important enough to uh, show a nurse doing documentation that, you know, that's a normal part of the job. Don't tell me you didn't have time to do it. Do right. it your shift for crying out loud. Right, right. I'm looking at this uh, at this NICU procedure for infiltrates, and it you know the, another thing that I'm noticing that they have in here that I'm, I'm guessing you probably had fun with the trial was that they've got the stages of clinical symptoms of the you know how bad it is, and so for them to say that this happened in 30 minutes or less, I mean I could just see you walking through cross examination of so you had to go through stage one where you had edema of less than an inch and then go to stage two and then go to stage three and then go to stage four and all that happened in less than half an hour. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, so here's a stage four burn uh, where it's burned out underneath the skin so much that hey, it's, there's a permanent withering of the, of the ankle. You don't go from zero to 60 miles an hour in right. a couple of seconds. It takes a little time. Right, right. Um, well, I, I did want to ask you, you know, since we've got the author of Rules of the Road on uh, our podcast, can you talk a little bit about how you applied the rules to this case? And, uh, and, and Yeah, there were two, um, two great rules okay. that we had, um, uh, neither of which I thought of personally, but as soon as somebody said it, I said, damn, that's going to work. <laughs> right. Um, the first one, I think our nurse expert came up with this, was she said basically the whole standard of care, when you get puffiness at an IV site, you take it out. Right. So when in doubt, take it out. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and, and then a, a kind of a, a variation on that was um, at the first sign, pull the line. Uh, so actually, you know, the rhyming stuff is, is a serious point. It sounds kind of cute, but, um, and you don't want to overuse it, but it makes things memorable for people. And, uh, you know, 
glove don't fit, you must acquit kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, it's really, I think, important to look for those kinds of simple memory devices. Um, there was this great book a few years ago um, by this Nobel Prize uh, psychologist named Daniel Kahneman called Thinking, comma, Fast and Slow about different ways that we, we uh, he's talking about intuitive versus right. logical. Uh, intuitive being fast, logical being slow. And uh, he, he pulled together a lot of really cool research studies into this book. I highly recommend it for any trial lawyers because it gives you a lot of persuasion ideas. Well, one of the ideas was uh, just from studies they did where they talked about the persuasiveness of concepts. And the, um, the uh, let's see, the one that, uh, that, that they had mentioned was um, uh, about, uh, and I'm, I'm blanking on it right now, but the, the exact rhyming version, but it, it was about uh, uh, enemies, uh, can sometimes have uh, allied positions, which uh, uh, it makes sense for them to get together on. I'm sorry, there was a rhyming version of that that I've now <laughs> got. Um, but basically they tested the non-rhyming version versus the rhyming version. And every time people said, you know, I like, I, I like that one version, I think that's true. Whereas the other one, you give it to them, say, no, that doesn't sound accurate. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that can't be right. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just got more credibility to it. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Uh, I, I wanted to point out to our listeners, one of the other uh, that I liked what you did with, because, um, you know, when you try a medical malpractice case and you talk about standard of care, you know, it's, it's sometimes that can be a hard concept for juries to understand what exactly that means. And so when you discuss your, you know, standard of care, your universal standard of care, you just told them it's a patient safety rule. And, uh, and I, you know, I love that use of, you know, it's, it, it's about how do you keep patients safe? Because that's really what all of yeah. this is about when you're in healthcare. Yeah. In fact, uh, the defense, um, often, um, 
files motions and eliminate to try to prevent that totally inflammatory and unfair right. kind of kind of talk. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. Um, because what what they do, and they do this on these reptile motions, they have also uh, reptiles kind of a branch of 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 what we do. Right. Rules of the road, but. Um, what we say to the judges is, well, wait a second, they're talking about censoring the kind of words of persuasion I use to talk about the case. What if the expert witness says, and of course, they, they always will say this, if you press them, what does that mean, standard of care? And what's the purpose of having a standard of care? Well, it's to pr protect patients from unnecessary harm um, and harm that didn't have to happen. So it's a patient safety rule. So once the expert talks about it like that way, why can't the lawyer? Right. And so usually we, we win those motions. Yeah, I was, I was wondering how many times do you get your book uh, quoted at you uh, in some sort of motion in limine when you're going to trial? I, I got to imagine it happens a lot. What I often get is um, because I put up uh, opening statements and closing arguments on uh, on my website, which is patrickmalonelaw.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you always got a plug. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I put up uh, openings and closings and, and also some cross-examinations that I think are, you know, pretty good, including from a, a lot of other really good lawyers, um, including, I'm pretty sure I've got one from Rick Friedman on there, plus a lot of other good ones. But I put up openings and closings just so people see how I do it. And what I've found is uh, defense lawyers take those and they download the whole thing and then they send a judge in the next trial, a big fat motion saying, look at what he said here and what he said there and what he said over in this other place. Totally improper, your honor. Right. <laughs> and I said, judge, every case goes on its facts. I know how to argue a case to fit with my facts. Those other cases, you know, that they complain about, well, it happened to be correct in that case. Right. Sure, we'll have something different in our case. Right. And so most, most uh, sophisticated judges understand that, that that's uh, a lot of nonsense. Yeah. But yeah, it does happen. I, I get my words uh, distorted back at me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, well, what did you do with um, the the baby in this case, who um, was obviously older for trial? How did you handle? Um, I mean, I know the jury saw pictures of the injury. Um, yeah, you, a good question. Did you have uh, her come in? What else did you do? Yeah, uh, a good question. So um, we had talked about only doing it through photos. And realizing that, you know, photos really don't do justice to it. For one thing, they're still, and you got to kind of see her walking around to get a flavor of it. And, and then we thought, well, we could bring her in when the, her treating doctor's on the witness stand, and he could kind of show her the jury. And then we thought, no, that doesn't sound good either. That's, that's a little bit like turning her into a rag doll or something that you're showing as a as an object and not a, a human being. So finally, what we settled on was just a brief little 
demonstration, and, and we ran this by the judge and the defense counsel ahead of time, and it lasted maybe five or six minutes, where we did it at the beginning of the day, I think it was the second day of trial. Oh, and by the way, this was a case where just by scheduling, and it shows you about how you can violate some of the sacrosanct rules and they turn out not to be so sacrosanct. Right. So we all know nowadays that you're supposed to try your liability first and foremost, and then and only then when you establish liability, go over to your damages. Well, we couldn't do that in this case. We had to do at least a good part of the damages first, uh, but it also worked because showing how bad it was was part of the liability case. But in any event, so she comes in on the second morning, morning of the second day of trial, and we had her mom just kind of sitting up in the well of the court with um, her favorite quilt on her lap, which, by the way, had been uh, sewn by grandma, our witness grandma, so they gave her a nice little extra bit of uh, homespun, literally homespun credibility. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and we uh, we had dad uh, just bring his daughter in and bring her over to mom and uh, and then I kind of uh, and she sat on mom's lap and very happy little rambunctious little girl and uh, I, I said uh, I, I kind of jumped in and, and and we planned this out pretty much not with Raquel, but with her parents, that this is what we were going to do. They told me that there was an exercise that she did um, in her one of her her PT type classes, where she stands on one foot at a time and recites the ABCs. <laughs> the idea is to try to make her stand on the affected foot for a longer period of time. So I said. Uh, to her, I just kind of stood up there with her and said, well, the first thing I said was, hey, you remember me? What's my name? Pat. And I said, what's my doggy's name? She said, Snickers. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, I'd, this is an, actually an important thing. You got to go to your client's house, spend some time there. And I happened to go with my little dog and that was all to the good. But, you know, it's better to see them in their natural environment. So we had done that a few weeks before. And then, and then I said, hey, can you do this? And I just um, lift, you know, was standing in front of her and I lifted up one of my legs and I started going A, B, C. And she promptly jumped in and she puts the affected foot, she stands on it first and lifts up the other foot. And she goes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, G, H, M, R, P. And she does it real fast because she can't. <laughs> Uh, stand on that foot very long. Then she switches over to the other foot and she's got a nice long recitation, you know, A, B, C uh, of the entire alphabet. And so it's very charming and very real, uh, yeah. very, very yeah. authentic. And then I had her do a couple other little things and, uh, and then she left. And then um, the uh, judge called the lawyers to the bench and this was interesting because I hadn't anticipated this, but kind of a really smart judge and very neutral, by the way. I just love these guys who just let you try the case very neutrally. Right. And 
If you do something wrong, they slap you down. And, but if you don't, they let you go on. So um, he respected me because I knew the rules of evidence and, and he was kind of a stickler for that. But in any event, so he calls us to the bench and I thought, oh God, have I done something wrong? But all it was was he wanted to put on the, on the, on the record, not reading out loud for the jury, he wanted to say, here's what I saw. Oh. And so he goes on and on about <laughs> everything he saw. And it was fantastic. It was actually much more than I had seen with my own two eyes. Uh, and he actually wound up putting a lot of his observations into his post-trial order about why the amount of damages was not inappropriate and he was not going to disturb the, the amount of damages. But I was thinking, wow, this is a really careful judge. A lot of judges, it just wouldn't have occurred to them to do that. And we wouldn't have had a good paper written record of, uh, of exactly what had gone on when she showed herself in court. So it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. And having that, um, having this sort of being able to show in a very, um, uh, gentle way, what kind of limitations she was, she was dealing with, but, but doing it live versus I think a lot of times that's done through video or right. somebody else talking right. about it to have it there where the jury can see it. Yeah. Um, but she doesn't really know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, sounds great. Yeah. It was very natural and unaffected. And, and of course, part of that is just a little, little girl. She's a wonderful little girl has a great personality and, and, uh, you know, it, that alone will take her far in life, as I said in my closing. But so it was, it was great. So uh, I, was, I was wondering, it, was there any argument by the defense, uh, you know, as far as when you get into damages, uh, that, that her injury just wasn't that bad or that it would get better over time and that as she got older, it wouldn't affect her that much? And if so, how did you address that? They put up a... In their closing, they said nothing about damages. They tried to say, hey, we met the standard of care. That's it. They actually talked for, uh, I'm sorry, I'm digressing a tiny bit, but my closing was 38 minutes. And I, the only reason I know that is that when they had gone on for twice that amount, like an hour and 20 minutes, the judge called them up to the bench and said, the plaintiff in his closing spent 38 minutes. You have now gone on for an hour and 20 minutes. How much more were you going to go? Yeah. And he then said, oh, well, judge, I've got another 10 or 15 minutes. But it's <laughs> all, all on their silly little liability points. But what they did try to do, they brought in a plastic surgeon who actually had trained our plastic surgeon, although he'd seen our little girl only one time. And he, he tried to maintain that she could get a pretty good cosmetic result from further plastic surgery to cover up the scar but it, you know they didn't buy that it, it uh it's basically putting a a patch on it and you'd see the edges of the patch it just wouldn't wouldn't work plus uh, our guy testified with great credibility that uh, look, you've only got three arteries going down to the foot and you'd have to pull one artery off and divert it to this patch you're putting on. 
of skin to, you know, to be able to keep it alive. Um, and so nobody would do that. And so, so they, they made kind of a half-hearted effort to defend damages, but not really that much. Right. Um, well, I, I did also want to ask you, um, you, you know, you've written the, uh, the book, I think your latest publication is The Fearless Cross-Examiner, and you did give us one of your cross-examinations where I, you know, I thought you did a great job of, you know, getting the witness to talk about, you know, when she came up with their opinions, and then, uh, you know, basically that she never relies on what the lawyers say, and then, and then that she had to rely on what the lawyers told her um, and how she just sort of crossed herself up. But uh, talk a little bit about your approach to cross-examination and, and, um, and how you use it in this case. Well, we have, uh, we're in a jurisdiction that just within the last three, four years, we've started having reports from experts that the expert has to sign and they have to say at the end, this is a complete statement of all of my opinions and the reason for my opinions in this case. Um, you can wave out of that, but I love that uh, report thing because the lawyers tend to get too heavy handed and they put their fingerprints all over the experts report and you can find that very easily and you can then avoid uh, deposing the witness, which I often, when I give talks to lawyers, I say, the problem with using a deposition to prepare for trial is that you're maybe 90% of it is you're training the witness to be a better witness right. at your expense. And maybe 10% of it is you're getting material that you can use uh, in your cross-examination. So I try to avoid deposing those people unless I really have to. And that worked out great in this case because she was not prepared for the fact that she had to contradict herself on being spoon-fed opinions by the lawyers and claiming that she was totally independent and then admitting, well, actually, I do have to rely on what they tell me. And yeah. yeah, so it was pretty amusing. <laughs> I'm sure that this would have been one of those where I have I have I have these moments at like every trial that I've been in so far, but where I'm just squirming sitting there watching, you know, like third person squirming for, for the witness. Sounds like yeah. that's one. And you got to be really uh, careful. Um, it's you know, and maybe I think I'm better at this because I've gotten a tiny bit older. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. I'm, the, I'm an old geezer, but um, in the old days, I might have gotten sharper and even to the point of being a little edgy and, and sarcastic and whatnot. And that really doesn't work. Uh, you've got to kind of stay a little emotionally flat and kind of let the witness hang themselves and and not get in their way of doing that. Yeah. Right, right. Um, well, and then I, finally, and, and then I'll, we'll let you go after this, and, and we've really appreciated your time. Um, talk a little bit about in, during jury selection, um, you know, how, how you approach that. Were you looking for a particular type of juror? Was there a focus group where, that had helped you know, you know who would be good for you, who wouldn't, and, um, and how, how you approach jury selection in this case? Um, well, I'm going to answer that question, but then go on to just one more point. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Please. It's totally unrelated. Uh, but my answer to that is very quick. 
We have federal style okay. judge run voir dire. It's very quick. Um, we were feverishly doing internet research on some jurors and we found a few really bad ones that we got rid of on peremptories, but there was very little we could do. Uh, we actually had a really interesting jury. Uh, juries in DC tend to be very professional. There, there was a lawyer on the jury. There was um, an art curator from the National Gallery of Art. There was, um, or I'm sorry, art, art pr preservation person. Right. Um, and there was a political consultant. There's all kinds of really interesting people on the jury, but bottom line is very little ability to weed them out and, you know, kind of custom craft your own jury. But the only other thing I'm going to segue to that was really good in the closing argument, if I do say so myself, uh, is, uh, you know, trying to figure out ahead of time what the, uh, how to, how to convey the profundity and the importance of a, just the cosmetic aspect of an ankle injury to a little girl who's going to grow up into a woman. And um, so I did some Googling around on the internet uh, the night before closing and found basically little ads for women's shoe wear, uh, footwear. And I put a, seven or eight of those on a PowerPoint slide and just all different kinds of shoes. And they all were women exposing their ankles. Uh, it's an object of beauty. Hey, nothing wrong with that. And our little girl not being able to do that for the rest of her life. I mean, right. you, you know, some people, it might sound like nothing to, but really for the rest of your life, uh, not being able to, to do things that other women just ordinarily do and don't even think about and having to take special thought every day to what you put on that foot and having to answer people's questions constantly. Oh my goodness, what happened to your foot? Right. And, uh, you know, so just a, just a pretty profound thing. And that was helpful giving those photos. Yeah. You know, I, I, when I was thinking about it, uh, you know, you, I, I didn't realize that you had talked about that she was actually going to have to have a surgery to shorten her other leg because they were not matching, yeah. uh, which is pretty significant. But um, I, I liked how you approached it uh, also because you talked about how the mom was spending time teaching her that this scar was something, you know, to, you know, you build character out of it's, it's yeah, character you know, formation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. One of those things in life you overcome and uh, and it makes you a better person yeah and, um, you know and so I, I i love the way you uh you approach that in the close and actually just one other tiny one is uh and i've done this before i'm always looking around the courthouse for things that are interesting that i can mention to um, the jury and there was one thing i i deliberately mentioned because i thought it tied into the case there was a display out in the atrium of the courthouse. We have a nice courthouse. Uh, and the display was older children in their teens who were looking to be adopted. Oh, yeah. And there were posters of these kids and their first names and just saying that, you know, making a pitch for them. And, uh, and it just, it, it just, you know, 
uh, heartbreaking. And so I could say, you know, our little girl, unlike these other children, has some tremendous advantages of having such fantastic parents. Yeah. Um, but, you know, kind of tying it into real life. Well, it's uh, it's fantastic work, and it's been great talking to you, Patrick. Uh, I want to remind our listeners we've been talking to uh, Patrick Malone uh, of Patrick Malone Associates, and uh, you can look up Patrick at patrickmalonelaw.com. And uh, the case that we've been talking about is Gambino versus uh, Georgetown University Hospital, and it was a $3.6 million verdict and uh, fantastic work. Uh, Patrick, we really appreciate your time and really appreciate you uh, – Uh, sharing with us some of your uh, insights. Yes, thank you so much. Well, Yvonne and Steve, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.